Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 17th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. And I'm Michelle Dennity. Eric, after hearing part one of Robert Friedland's interview on what it will take to green the global economy, I can't wait to hear part two. We left off last week with Robert explaining that if we could just figure out how to drill large diameter tunnels in very hot granite rock formations deep down in the Earth's crust that are 200 to 300 degrees Celsius, then we could literally produce enough clean, green electricity from geothermal power generation to supply the entire planet with almost unlimited clean electricity. That would mean electric vehicles could become the norm, almost completely eliminating our dependence on fossil fuels. Exactly, Michelle. And when I heard that, the first question that came to mind is, okay, why do we hear so much focus in the environmental community on wind and solar and so little emphasis on geothermal when this kind of opportunity is possible? If we can just break a few technology barriers and figure out how to drill holes in very hot rock. So let's pick the conversation up right there. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. How come I'm hearing these things from you, but most of the environmental community tends to focus entirely on things like windmills and solar panels? You did mention solar panels as being one of the best ways of generating electricity, but you also described its limitations. How come I don't hear more environmentalists talking about the need to drill large diameter tunnels through granite in order to release unlimited amounts of energy? Well, if we're looking like Buckminster Fuller and we're just looking to design a better world, it's important to go back to first principles. And the geologists have an enormous amount to explain to humanity about how this planet was created, the history of this planet, and the understanding of modern geological concepts are is just crazy important because we're walking on Mother Earth and we never really think about what's underneath our feet. And so people have all kinds of ideas. Some people have, you know, a deeper understanding of the supply chain and others don't. A solar and wind are great. You know, the, the sun doesn't shine all the time. Everybody knows that. And the wind doesn't blow all the time. But if you put up these big wind farms in a lot of wealthy communities, you'll find a lot of people protesting. They don't like the looks of those big windmills. They don't like the whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You know, the sound they make when they turn around like a giant egg beater. And they're very hard to recycle. When those blades uh, reach the end of their life, they've got to take them down and they're hard to grind them up and recycle them. But more importantly, if you're my girlfriend and we're flying north, we're a couple of Canadian geese, or we're a bald eagle, we fly right into one of those blades. We don't see those blades and they chew up a lot of bird life. This is the dirty secret of the wind power industry. So if you love birds, those birds try to navigate through giant wind farms. They just don't make it because at the tip velocity, those blades are turning. The bird life just don't see those blades. So a lot of people want to put uh, these wind farms out at sea where they're sort of out of sight and out of mind. If you're 26 kilometers away from the coast, the windmills are invisible due to the curvature of the earth when you're standing on the beach. But there is bird life out there, and these, uh, these blades do need to be maintained. The bearings need maintenance, uh, the blades need maintenance, and over time they have to be torn down, dragged down, rebuilt, and so there's nothing free about it. There's a lot of uh, energy and maintenance involved in maintaining the system. Solar is nicer because nothing is moving. There's no moving parts. They're just sitting out there in the desert. It's a more elegant system. If you can find a place where there's a lot of sun and real estate is inexpensive, 
you can generate huge amounts of power, but you have to store it. And that begs the question of how do we store electrical energy in the grid? Because as a species, we use more in the daytime and less at night. If everybody uh, in America buys a Tesla and comes home, uh, it comes back to the office for dinner and plugs it in at 5.30 p.m. when they get home, the whole grid would just immediately die. The, the grid just can't deal with millions of electrical cars saying, please give me electrical energy at 5.30 or 6 p.m. So these cars are going to have to be slow charged at night. When people are asleep, you're going to need a smart grid to make sure you don't have huge shocks to the charging. And then, of course, this brings into question, where are you going to get the metal to, to rebuild the grid? What metals are you going to need when the enormous amount of mining that is going to have to be done to get the metals to even allow this distribution of electrical energy to the point of consumption? So that's another huge question. When you stop burning hydrocarbon and you don't like coal, then you just put the future of the world in the hands of the geologists and the miners, because none of this can be done without certain elements in the periodic table that we call metals. Let's go into more detail, Robert, on this midstream question of the electric grid, because it seems to me that if there's anything that I think that is missing from the public discussion about the Green Revolution, Green New Deal, whatever it is, I don't hear adequate discussion of what is the electrical grid that you need? And I think something that, that's really key that you touched on is capacitance, the idea that the electrical grid needs to be able to store some energy and not just deliver it. The, the idea of an electric grid which is big enough, let, let's imagine 50 years from now that any kind of internal combustion vehicle is uh, an antique collector's item. Everybody has electric vehicles. All of the vehicles are electric. They all have to be recharged every single day. We don't have an electric grid, so far as I understand it, that comes anywhere close to that. But I also don't hear public debate about how we're going to build the electric grid that we need. What does it need to look like? How should the new electric grid of the future be designed? Who should design it? What has to happen? When does it have to happen? And how does that compare to what's actually happening right now? I'm sorry to tell you, this is a question that the Chinese have been thinking about, and the Chinese are just absurdly far ahead of the, than the United States, not even close. The American electrical grid is like a little old lady laying in bed waiting to die. And when we had the Paradise Fire in California, which tragically resulted in a lot of fatalities, they had fire tornadoes. The fires were so hot. The power line that caused that fire, which belonged to the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, was well over 105 years old. So, you know, the average American has no idea that parts of our grid are literally a century old. And so the American electrical grid was designed for a completely different era. It's old, it's tired, it's poorly designed, it's poorly thought out. And it's definitely not ready for the electrification of the automobile. So rebuilding the electrical grid in America from scratch as an intelligent grid that can transfer huge amounts of energy, let's say 1,000 kVA lines from areas of energy abundance to energy requirement, is it's going to cost tens of trillions of dollars. And right now, politicians are somebody that bribe you with your own money. You know, right now we're talking about a $1.9 trillion stimulation. And the bond market is starting to protest. The last few days we saw the 10-year rate bump up to one and a half, one point six percent You know, nothing is free. And this $2 trillion is just to meet immediate human needs. People that uh, have suffered disproportionately as a result of unemployment or the impact of the virus. But at some point, we're going to have to go to Congress in the United States and come up with a $10 trillion budget to design a brand new electrical grid. And that's why I'm saying people don't realize the immensity and the scale of the challenge, because the grid is made out of something. It uses huge amounts of electrical energy to even make the grid, because the grid is aluminum and the grid is copper. And of course, you need huge amounts of electrical energy to make aluminum. 
and you need large amounts of electrical energy to make copper. So we need energy to make a new grid, to distribute the power, to allow the electrification of trucks, cars, and buses. And that will probably be one of the great reasons why the hydrogen economy will become so important in the future as well. So there's going to be a series of, of competing, disruptive, new ways to address this question. But I don't think there's any choice other than to accept the basic premise that we have to electrify the world economy. At the Colorado School of Mines, there are these two very famous bumper stickers. The Colorado School of Mines is probably the best school of mining and geology in existence on a global scale. And of course, there's a lot of hardworking young men and women that are studying all these questions working there, but they have two bumper stickers. One is stop mining, let the bastards freeze in the dark, which is their answer to the anti-mining movement. And the other is earth first, we'll mine the other planets later. Mining is absolutely essential to getting the metals to redesign the system. If you truly want to eliminate global warming gas, it's going to be like trying to get the contents of the Hoover Dam through a garden hose because you have to get the raw material you need to support whatever new system you project. And the scale of hydrocarbon, where the oil fields, the pipelines, the gas stations, the refineries, that whole system being disrupted is an astronomically large undertaking that will take probably a generation or more. But your kids will grow up never having driven an internal combustion engine. You know, it'll be like something in a museum. Uh, once a year, there'll be a, somebody will bring out some gasoline and that old 1890s car will go by on Fifth Avenue once a year and everybody will look at it and say, wow, that was an internal combustion engine. It, it's going the way of the dodo bird, but the disruption is going to be massive, broad, wide, and deep. But it sounds to me like there's no way to achieve that on a large societal scale until we recognize the need to re-engineer and rebuild the entire electric grid, which frankly is not a subject of discussion really in most green economy, you know, public debate, Green New Deal. Nobody's talking about a, a multi-trillion dollar re-engineering of the electric grid to bring it up to snuff with where China is. Nobody's talking about that. Well, they got a rude shock in Texas recently when the grid went down in the great state of Texas. <laughs> I was talking to my friend Frank Holmes on a uh, video call, and you know he went down because his electricity went down in the great state of Texas. So the Texas grid didn't do so well in response to cold weather, but there's much bigger shocks coming to the grid. So you're right. You know the Chinese have already done it. Uh, China has thought about this question and has built the most modern and robust electrical grid in the world. If you were to compare the sophistication of the American grid to the Chinese grid, the Chinese grid is orders of magnitude better, better managed, better engineered, and more sophisticated. Because they think about these things, you know, that central planning is excellent when the people doing the planning are intelligent. But we are not planning for the future very well. We, we have Elon Musk who gave all of the traditional automakers a hot foot. He shocked them into the inevitability of the electric car. You know, both Toyota and Daimler were early shareholders in Tesla. And they regret that they sold their shares too early. They never should have, you know, they, they just were very short-sighted. But now that we see that we're going to electrify all of transportation, we're going to need a much more robust grid. And eventually people start talking about it like we are now on smarter markets we're going to need a brand new grid. You know, New York City had a, had a great blackout. It resulted in a lot of babies when it happened, but most of the electrical energy to New York City comes from Quebec. There's hydroelectric power in Quebec and it's transmitted down to New York. But when that grid failed, the whole city went black. And we'll see a lot more of this if everybody starts plugging in millions and millions of electrical cars. Right now in the United States, there's 280 million automobiles that actually move around, not the ones in the garage, you know, not the third or fourth cars. There's 280 million automobiles. Only 1 million of those are electric cars. 
So as we get to 20, 30, 40, 50 million, 100 million electrical cars, you will see very quickly that we have to rebuild the electrical grid. In order to build those cars and to build the electric grid that will make it possible to charge them, is there an alternative to what sounds to me like an astronomical amount of copper? We've replaced a lot of other materials. We've, you know, we've gone from aluminum airplanes to carbon fiber airplanes. Carbon fiber doesn't conduct electricity, so we're not going to have carbon fiber electrical lines. Is there an alternative or are there other things we should be looking at instead of copper as the basis of both the, the motors for the electric vehicles and also the electric grid? Or is copper kind of the only, the only uh, choice available? I don't want to be accused of uh, talking my book. You know, there are many metals that will be required for this transformation. When you're talking about transportation, one of the key themes will be light weighting. Everything has to be made lighter so that it inherently uses less energy getting from point A to point B. So trucks will be lighter, trains will be lighter, subway cars will be lighter, aircraft will be lighter, automobiles will be lighter, motorcycles will be lighter and even hoverboards and skateboards will be lighter. So light weighting itself depends on a number of potential technologies. There's aluminum, which you can generate fantastic alloys with aluminum used in aircraft now. And carbon fiber is also useful. In an automobile, uh, when you had a a fiberglass Porsche and you, you dinged it, it was really hard to fix. Aluminum is wonderful in that it's recyclable and it absorbs energy on impact. A lot of fraternity boys take an aluminum beer can and smash it against their forehead as a stunt because that aluminum can, as it crumples, absorbs energy. So most of the great automakers think cars will be made out of aluminum alloy. That makes them easy to recycle. And so aluminum is a big winner in this game and presents a challenge to steel. So the steel industry has to come up with stronger, lighter, thinner steel to compete with aluminum. And then the electrically conductive metals are essential. You need gold and you need silver and you need copper to conduct electrical energy. But gold is just too expensive for the purpose. Silver is used in solar panels. It's an important industrial use for silver. It used to be used in photography, but now we have electronic photography. We don't need silver for that purpose anymore. But copper is ubiquitous. Copper conducts electrical energy and also transmits heat. It's a very important characteristics of copper that better than any other metal in the periodic table. So clearly copper is a big winner, but it's not alone. Uh, If you want to store electrical energy in a battery, nickel is the biggest winner. And if you don't want that nickel battery to catch on fire, through a plethora of charge and discharge cycles, the problem with a battery made out of nickel, when you charge it and discharge it thousands of times, it it forms little dendritic particles that grow from the anode into the cathode. If you allow that to happen, that battery will catch on fire. And lithium, which is used to let the molecules, the electrons jump back and forth, is very, very flammable. So you need cobalt in that battery to prevent the formation of dendrites and to keep that battery calm over thousands of cycles. Now, there are ways to thrift on the cobalt, but then you just need more nickel. So nickel and copper and cobalt are very important. Lithium metal is useful, but lithium is very plentiful in the crust of the earth. It's not an element that we're worried about. It's more like the silica in solar cells. It's cheap and it's plentiful. But nickel is a very rare metal, a very short supply. And copper is a relatively rare metal and in short supply. Copper inventories right now are the lowest they've been in 10 years. And that's why people are concerned about copper supply. A lot of the great copper mines in the world are 50 years old or 100 years old and they're being depleted. So we need a whole new generation of copper mines. So, you know, the miners are going to have an enormous role to play in the energy transformation. And perhaps we'll be mining on Mars or other planets in the future. We're working on a television series about that, you know, sort of causing people to think a little bit wider about where these metals are going to have to come from. 
Let's compare what you see as needed with what's actually going on in terms of the public debate and the, the government-sponsored programs, the stimulus programs, the infrastructure investment programs, and so forth. It seems to me like at the, the downstream end of this, the electric vehicle revolution, which is clearly a big trend right now, is the right trend. The right thing is happening. We're, we're building more and more electric vehicles. Of course, it's not going to happen overnight. In order to get from where we are now to, to electric vehicles being prevalent is probably quite a few years away, but it'll happen. In terms of the midstream, the distribution, you're saying we need a whole new electrical grid. I, I don't hear anybody really talking about public debate around the need for a, a trillion dollar or multi-trillion dollar newly re-engineered electric grid to give us capabilities well beyond what we're doing. And you're telling me China's already way ahead of us. Uh, am I missing anything here? Are there, are there government initiatives to take this on? Do people understand this? What needs to happen in order to get us on the right track? few more power failures like you just had in Texas will certainly sharpen people's minds. So, you know, these failures of our grid are opening soon at a theater near you. It's just physics. The grid wasn't designed to add tens of millions of electrical cars. And so you'll learn very quickly when you plug them in that you're going to have to re-engineer the, the generation and distribution system. And we hope that the market economy, you know, responds with appropriate signals. Now, I've been arguing for the last five years that the real beauty and the initial beauty of what Elon Musk proposed and has achieved so far is, is simply that in an urban environment, the electric vehicle does not directly put fine-grained pollutants into the air. When you have an internal combustion engine, and you live in a city like Bombay, India, New Delhi, India, Los Angeles in the 1950s in a basin, or uh, any other major cities with huge amounts of urban air, those sub 2.5 micron particles from the internal combustion engine lodge in your heart and lungs, and they're so small they even go past the blood-brain barrier. So they go into your Roche Motel and they never come out when you breathe those fine-grained particulates. And there's recent evidence that dementia and perhaps Alzheimer's are related to urban air pollution. There's been a direct mathematical correlation to how close you live to a busy road or a street with internal combustion engines and your chances of coming down with dementia. That's why people instinctively, when they go on vacation, they go out into the woods, they go to Yosemite or they go to the Amalfi Coast in Italy, somewhere where the air is clean. They want to get away from that air pollution. And so the electric automobile has an immediate beneficial effect on urban air by cleaning the air of these noxious, very, very fine-grained sub-2.5 micron particles. They're, they're so small, you can't see them with the naked eye, but they're very, very bad for your health. So for that reason alone, it's a good idea to get rid of diesel buses diesel trucks, gasoline engines with, you know, inefficient sort of methods of reducing the air pollution coming out of the tailpipe. The catalytic converter works for a while, but after a while, the sulfuric acid associated with the exhaust destroys the platinum or palladium catalyst in the catalytic converter. So they get, say, five years old. They're not working very well anymore. Better to go to an electric car or a fuel cell car, which is also an electric car, and clean the air in the urban environment because 60% of humanity is moving to cities. That means 60% of the people on the planet are breathing urban air, and it's critical to clean up that air pollution because of the burden it places on human health. That alone is a great rationale for the electric car. Even if it's a coal-burning power plant, you could put that power plant out in the boondocks where nobody's directly breathing the air pollution from that power plant. Put it 500 miles away from the city, and you know it's a temporary solution. At least cleans the urban air, doesn't solve the problem of the global warming gas. So coming back to this whole thing, the effort to change the way we generate electrical energy and transmit it through the grid 
and deliver it in the final mile to your home and then to revolutionize the electrification of everything is going to be the biggest undertaking that has happened as a species. And when the first automobile was produced, it, you know, it changed the way horses worked in the urban environment in London and New York. Everybody was running around in a horse-drawn carriage. And a lot of people made a living shoveling horse excrement on Fifth Avenue. When the horses went away and they were replaced by the iron horse, the iron horse went viral globally, just like this COVID-19 virus. You can't find a country on this planet without the automobile. Now, it, it truly went viral. And now that virus is going to have to be changed in a form that is less polluting. And we're realizing the immensity of the task. And what the hell? We're up for it. The situation is hopeless. It's not serious. We, we have to do something as a species. And, and we learn from these disasters. Just that, that, that Texas incident alone, people are going to say, wow, I don't want my, you know, a lot of human suffering caused by that grid going down. And it'll happen again. The American grid will go down a number of times as a consequence of the shock to the grid. And then some future administration will finally reach a bipartisan consensus that the United States of America is going to have to re-engineer its grid top to bottom. It'll be a smart grid. It'll allocate energy better. It'll be more robust. It'll be less prone to shocks because the current grid can't take any shock at all without failing. Robert, one of the vulnerabilities of the current grid is a so-called EMP weapon, electromagnetic pulse weapons that are designed to disable the electric grid. And a lot of people have said it's, it's possible to explode a nuclear device high up, you know, tens of thousands of feet above the surface, so there's no fallout or anything, but you wipe out the whole electric grid and, and literally cripple the entire country. Is that something that technology exists? If we were building a new grid, we could make one that's impervious to EMP weapons, or is it something that we don't have a solution for? It's like that old cartoon, Spy versus Spy. Unfortunately, human beings put a huge amount of our mental effort into the dark side. And the dark side is the hidden militarized world of all these terrible and powerful technologies that can eliminate us as a species. So we all know about nuclear weapons, and they're so terrible, nobody really wants to use them. And inshallah, God willing, we will never use them. But they do exist, and, and hence the possibility for the use of atomic weaponry again is terrifyingly real. But in the meantime, scientists in the advanced countries have developed electromagnetic pulse weaponry. You're just sitting there in London or New York or Los Angeles, enjoying your day, and a missile is far overhead, you can't see it, and something goes, there's no sound, there's no bomb, there's no heat, there's no light, there's no mushroom cloud, there's just an enormous wave of electromagnetic energy, which can also be created organically by the sun, but this electromagnetic wave energy would come down and just wipe out everything electrical, everything. You would have no running water because the pumps wouldn't work. Automobiles and trucks would stop in the middle of the road. The hospital would be dark and your hot monitor wouldn't work. And you would be in a nanosecond thrown back into the Stone Age in that particular city. So that, that offensive weaponry exists. You know, the superpowers work on advancing that. That's done. Those electromagnetic fields are generated by the compression of electrical energy with superconductors and supercapacitors. And then there's, a, of course, every action begets an equal and opposite counterreaction. There's a huge amount of military work being done to prevent the damage from electromagnetic pulse weaponry. For example, an Air Force One flying the president could be disabled by electromagnetic wave. And so you want to harden that aircraft not to be disabled by an electromagnetic wave. And so there's an enormous amount of work being done to prevent the grid from going down from an electromagnetic pulse weapon. But the current grid is completely vulnerable to electromagnetic attack and is even vulnerable to an organic wave of electromagnetic energy that the sun throws off periodically. So, you know, I just want to leave you with the thought that the current grid is really a joke. 
in geologic time. It's just standing for a moment. It has virtually no reserve capacity. It has no resiliency. It's not malleable. It can't take a shock. And what just happened in, in Texas is just a little warning shock for what's coming. So what we need to do as a society in the United States and what the Europeans have to do as a society is to get real and understand the scale of the challenge. Because, you know, the Germans said, well, we're not going to have nuclear power in Germany, but they just cynically import their nuclear power from France. You know, it comes in over the grid. You need to have very wide systemic redesign of how we generate electrical power, how we transmit it. And yes, it would probably be better to put those, you know, those interstate power lines underground and fairly deep underground and, and hardened from electromagnetic attack. And that just makes them a lot more expensive. And, you know, the American government is already, what, $100 trillion in debt when you include unfunded pension liabilities and the enormous amount of deficit spending. How we organize as a society get away from this blue versus red state mentality and get everybody organized on what is really seriously important for the common good. I, I would suggest that all these hot-headed politicians tearing each other apart at the throat would be better off to focus on the restructuring and rebuilding and the redesign of the American grid to allow for electrification of the world economy. We need a little more of that spirit of John F. Kennedy, where you set a great vision and you call the American people to achieve it. And we need a lot more respect for the Chinese because the Chinese have to look after 1.4 billion people, and they're very good at planning ahead. They're very good at looking after the welfare of all of their people, and they do have a much more sophisticated and well-designed electrical grid than the United States. Well, you described the U.S. grid as a joke, and I, w I would say that the joke that's not funny is I don't hear anybody having a serious dialogue about what it's going to take to fix it. In fact, I interview people who, who are recognized as experts in ESG who tell me there's no problem, that there's nothing wrong with the grid, that it doesn't need to be enhanced in order to support electric vehicles. And I, I, I don't think that they have accurate data. Let's move back to upstream in terms of what exists there and how it matches the actual initiatives that are in play. You're saying the single most important thing that we need to do to green the global economy is learn how to drill wide diameter tunnels through very hot rock in order to extract essentially free geothermal energy that would provide us with almost limitless, completely green energy. I don't hear anybody talking about that except for you, Robert. Uh, I, don't, I don't hear that as uh, certainly geothermal is acknowledged, but I think this deep geothermal that you're talking about, I haven't heard much discussion about. The next thing that you said was maybe the second priority is if we're going to have a nuclear renaissance, we ought to be looking at fuels other than uranium and cycles other than the uranium cycle that don't have a meltdown risk, such as the liquid fluoride thorium reactor process, which, by the way, was tested and proven you know, five decades ago, but abandoned and, and no longer used. What do we need to do or, or, or what is happening to align the public discussion? If we're going to have a, a Green New Deal or a Green Revolution or a Green whatever it's called in political circles, how are we going to get it aligned with a nuclear renaissance that focuses on the right fuels and geothermal initiative that focuses on drilling wide diameter holes through uh, deep rock, which is where you say the best geothermal free energy, not free energy, but the, the greenest energy is available. Well, I just said that that's sort of a, an idea that I personally like the best. Just taking my own limited experience on this planet and with the people that I've met and with certain technologies that are available to me that I've seen, I think that's a viable alternative. I'm not saying it's the only alternative. I'm just saying it's the most elegant one. Once you understand that Mother Earth herself is a nuclear reactor at her core, and there's enough fuel in the core of the Earth to, to generate that heat for several billion years, at the scale of you know humanity's existence on this planet, it's an obvious answer. And the fact that it hasn't really been focused on in the popular media 
does not mean that people are not thinking about it. We have a private technology company that has proposed the idea to a major government. And the government is enamored with the idea, and we think we're going to get governmental support. Now, the American government has a secretary of energy, and the American government now has a green czar. And we have great universities in the United States, like MIT and Caltech. And we're going we're gonna to generate you know, a generation of young kids that are going to be engineers of every type and persuasion. And the fundamental question of how we generate electrical energy and use it is going to face all of us because the internet is not green. The cloud is not green. Broadband wireless is not green. Shooting rockets into outer space is not particularly green. All human activity you know, bears a certain cost on, on the environment. If there were only a few thousand human beings on this planet, we could go back to the Garden of Eden. But there's too many of us. And so we just need to learn to think differently. And, and it's very interesting to see that a lot of the tech billionaires, you know, really do start to think about other planets or space communications or disrupting technology. And that's why Elon Musk is one of the most important entrepreneurs of this generation, because he thinks crazy and he thinks big. And I'm happy to report to you that there are a lot of kids in China that think crazy and think big. There's kids in Russia that think crazy and think big. And there'll be kids in Europe who think crazy and think big. So we just need to you know, understand where we're trying to go as a species. But I think we don't want to leave human beings out of the equation. I think that if you just say you don't want people to have electrical energy, you don't want people to have food and water, that's not fair. I think the, the wealth disparity that exists on this planet is bordering on obscene. Uh, the whole thing has to be thought out better. And I do think we need a lot more understanding and respect for Confucian culture and the way Oriental people and Oriental societies see themselves, because this is something not well understood by Western society, which is all based on individual freedom. There are two entirely different worldviews. They're both equally valid. If you're going to build a better grid for all of your people, central planning may be a better way to go. You know, The Europeans are also thinking with a degree of central planning for Europe. You'd never get the Greeks and the Italians and the Latvians and the Spanish and the Poles to solve this problem on their own. And these are very, very large-scale problems that require out-of-the-box commitment, and it's going to take generations of focused effort to get this right. And so the, that gets me back to Bill Gates. His, his second fear is of those people who just want the obvious but have no concept of what it's really going to take to get there from here. Robert, final question. The topic of today's podcast is what will it take to green the global economy? What things have we not discussed yet? And particularly, what are the things that will be needed in order to green the global economy that maybe most people aren't thinking about and need to be thinking about? Well, if you're defining the change that you want as to stop burning hydrocarbon and to stop burning coal, which are generating, a, say, half of America's static electrical load is generated by burning coal. You want to stop that. And, and parenthetically, you don't want to freeze in the dark when you do that. You want to keep the average American warm and fed and clothed. Then we're going to have to rebuild the way we generate, transmit, and utilize electrical energy. And for that, we're going to need society to support the prospecting and development of the critical metals we need to make that transition. Without legislative support for mining of these critical metals that you require to make the transition, it will be impossible. If the miners run into a wall of bureaucratic opposition on less than informed understanding of the necessity for those critical metals, then you are condemning everybody to continue to burn hydrocarbon and coal and you'll see the problem get worse and worse. So government policy is going to need a huge shakeup. And I think the denial of the problem is not the correct answer. 
that we saw in the last administration. That's just not going to work. The problem is real. You know, the people that run Middle Eastern countries had the invigorating experience of watching crude oil go to zero during this pandemic in price. And imagine how much they focused their mind on what would happen to the source of their wealth if we electrify the world economy. And amazingly, some of these Middle Eastern countries are very much buying into the energy revolution. They, they have the resources for solar power. Imagine how much sun is shining in Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, the, the hydrocarbon incumbents who have the big cash flow have the wealth to drive the transformation. Total, which is controlled by the French government, has announced that it will not be producing hydrocarbon in 30 years. And Total is in the process of reinventing itself as a company that generates energy through other means. And so it's possible for all of these caterpillars to metamorphose into butterflies. But it's, it's going to take a combination of legislative intent and more bipartisan understanding and education of legislatures of what it really is going to take. I think we need to define a seriously great American project, a seriously great European project, a seriously great Chinese or Russian project to transform the energy transmission and distribution system. It's a, it's a worthy goal. It's really, worth it. it's really worth doing it. A lot of it is coming as a function of the reinvention of the electrical car. We started with electrical cars in the beginning, but the batteries weren't good enough, so we went to the internal combustion engine. And what an, what an incredibly exciting time to be a young person, to be able to work in the hydrogen economy or to develop a better battery or to be a young geologist and go find the metals you need for this energy transformation. And, and you know, we're piggybacking on all these technological revolutions that have occurred, like 5G communications and centralized data banks of all known human knowledge. I'm just hoping we find a way to get on with this enterprise without going to war. I think it's much better that we compete by a well-recognized level playing field and we all get on with this enormously important transformation. And uh, I, I think the glass is half full. There, there are tremendous breakthroughs happening in all fields of human endeavor. In biotechnology, just incredible breakthroughs are coming. And in electrical engineering, in mining, Finally, mining is being disrupted. We could spend hours talking about the changes we see in mining, but one of the most basic of all human activities is mining. They mined you know, limestone to build the pyramids in Egypt, say, four or 5,000 years ago. Mining has been around forever, but it's the last great industry to be completely disrupted in the next 20 or 30 years. What we mine, how we mine, why we mine, has to be completely reinvented. And we're very happy to be a part of that particular change that's coming and opening soon at a theater near you. Well, Robert, I can't thank you enough for another terrific interview. We didn't have time in this one to talk in detail about how to invest in the technologies that are going to enable this revolution. I'd like to invite you back at some point to do another interview on that subject. Maybe we can do that on the Macro Voices podcast. In any event, thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Eric. It was a great pleasure. Wow, Eric, Robert Friedland really delivers a terrific interview. I was particularly interested in this hydrogen economy and how we can think about the endless possibilities if we could have this crazy Pac-Man world underneath our very feet. Eric, what were your main takeaways from this two-part series? This completely changed my thinking about the future of energy policy on Earth, Michelle, I, I, and I don't say that lightly. I have for years thought that thorium reactors were the future. And the reason I felt that, in, and I think it's a huge social challenge to get there, is we need to eventually get away from fossil fuels and figure out a green way of generating electricity to power the global economy. That has to be the future. And I used to think, you know, as much as people are emotionally 
tied to this idea that nuclear is bad. The reality is that the current generation of uranium-fired nuclear reactors is bad, and particularly the way that they have been built on fault lines and in tsunami zones and so forth is really bad. But if you used the thorium cycle, which is completely impervious to meltdowns, I figured that's going to be the answer, but it'll probably be decades before the world gets into so much of a crisis that they're forced to get over the emotional resistance that the whole planet has to anything that has nuclear in its name. I thought that was the conundrum that was going to challenge us for decades. And what I realized is it's so simple, but Robert's right. All you have to do is figure out how to overcome this technology challenge of how do you drill holes through very hot granite, you know, hundreds of degrees Celsius granite, much hotter than the the boiling temperature of water, so that you can pump cold water down and get not just hot water back, but pressurized steam coming back up that can directly drive a turbine that generates electricity. Once you do that, the, the heat of the earth from the earth's mantle is enough to power the global economy forever with completely green energy. So I just realized, you know, it's like the, the space race of that's going to completely transform the energy economy is who figures out how to drill tunnels in rock that's really hot. So I think for me, Michelle, that's the big takeaway is this Pac-Man machine that Robert talked about. I don't know if his company is going to figure out how to do it or somebody else is, but someday somebody's going to solve that problem. And it literally provides a solution, which I think is not only a little bit better than the nuclear solution that I had in mind, but it doesn't require that everybody on the whole planet get over their emotional hangups about anything with nuclear in its name. And so it's a clear winner. I agree. It's amazing to me, this this whole relationship to scientific discovery and fear. So when he was talking about, as, as you mentioned, the thorium cycle being immediately diverted to war making, and that was the fear is even though it was cleaner nuclear or safer nuclear, it was the fear and the emotion behind it of how do we as a people reconcile our emotion with the scientific revolution that could ultimately save us. You mentioned at the end of the interview that you were going to invite Robert to do a follow-on interview on your Macro Voices podcast to talk about the investment plays associated with all the things discussed in this two-part series. What's the story there, Eric? That interview has already been recorded, and it was a terrific one. It's going to air this coming Thursday, the 25th of March, on Macro Voices at macrovoices.com, 8 p.m. Thursday night. And it was a little bit of a misunderstanding, but it was a fortuitous misunderstanding. Robert had told me a bit about his private company, iPulse Technologies. And I didn't know that he had never spoken about iPulse in public media. So in this interview, I asked him quite a bit about what iPulse is doing in terms of providing enabling technology to build that Pac-Man machine that can drill the holes in deep rock. And if you listen carefully to the interview, you'll hear it sounds like he's a little uncomfortable and I couldn't figure out what was going on. At the end, he said, Eric, I've never talked publicly about what we're doing at iPulse. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. And I said, oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, I'm sorry. Do, do you want us to, to uh, you know, edit that out of the interview? And he thought about it and he said, no, the hell with it. Just do it. So I didn't know I was getting a scoop and this is the first time that he's talking about this, but it's fascinating, Michelle. What they're doing is this super high energy uh, and it's 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 fascinating technology, but they're basically in one billionth of a second, very short duration pulses. They're shooting incredibly large amounts of electricity into rock formations, and only for a very short duration of a billionth of a second, they're essentially liquefying parts of the rock formation so that the drill bit doesn't have to mechanically grind through rock. They're actually loosening that rock up with these electrical pulses. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, it, is that going to be the enabling technology that lets us make geothermal power that completely revolutionizes energy and leads to a whole new economic norm? I don't know. Maybe that'll get us somewhere. Maybe it'll just 
you know, go nowhere and somebody else will figure out how to drill holes through deep, hot granite formations. As soon as somebody does, you know, and look, we, we sent a man to the moon 50 years ago. It's got to be possible for somebody to figure out how to drill holes in rocks that are deep underground and very hot. Once we do that, we can solve this whole energy problem forever. It To me, it was just uh, uh, an amazing interview, and I think that people are really going to enjoy it. So that's coming up on the 25th of March at macrovoices.com. That is so exciting. So I pulse out of stealth Thursday, March 25. Don't miss it on Macro Voices. So I hear you have another great guest. In fact, one of my favorite guests booked for next week. (laughs) Indeed, I do. Drum roll, please. The guest is, by listener request, you, Michelle Dennity. Uh, We realized, actually, and it's so glad that you started hosting with me in Robert's first episode. We got some listener feedback, and I talked to our friends at Abex, and we said, wait a minute, we're introducing a new host to this community. We should do a full-length interview with you, Michelle, as the guest, so people get to know you and your background and what you focus on and your expertise, and that will set the stage for you then to do your first interview with Jim Whitehurst from IBM, which is coming up soon right here on Smarter Markets. Thank you so much, Eric. I'm so excited about our interview together. Even in our prep, we've got our brass knuckles on. We're ready to agree vehemently and disagree, I think, respectfully, but passionately. So I think it's going to be a really fun episode. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, talking more about the intersection of technology and the future of currency and marketplaces. And it's all right here. I'm excited about it. And that's coming up next week right here on Smarter Markets. We're going to leave it here for this week's episode, though. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. And I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. 